Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Well, how good are you, think, uh, are you at thinking on your feet, thinking on the spot? Sadly, I'm plagued with that ailment known as the uh, 20-minute lag. You know that one? I'm having a conversation with someone. I can see the potential to talk about Jesus or introduce it as spiritual issues or I'll say something about God and the moment passes and we go our separate ways. About 20 minutes later, I've got the perfect response in my head. You like that at all? Can anyone relate to that? Uh, I certainly got it. Uh, This doesn't only happen when I'm sharing my faith either. It happens in all kinds of situations and conversations. Give me just 20 minutes and I'm back with a great response. Uh, So what amazes me about these four short stories is the brilliance of Jesus' answers under pressure. We've called this series, Who Do You Say I Am? Which is a question Jesus himself asked in Mark chapter 8. 
But as the gospel progresses, there's plenty of stories and details and interactions that help us answer that question for ourselves. And today's passage is a really good example. But as we go through, we also see how many different people responded to Jesus in all kinds of ways. And so as we answer the the title question, I think there's an equally important question for us. And it's this. How will I, or how perhaps how am I, responding to Jesus? Because Jesus didn't come to merely inform people. He came to transform people. So let's ask God to help us now. Thank you, Father, for your word and, and these stories we're looking at this morning. As we look at it, please help us recognize the real Jesus Help us turn away from wrong ideas about Jesus. Help us turn from wrong attitudes towards Jesus. Help us turn from wrong behaviours that have no place in people who follow him. Instead, please help us to turn to Jesus in faith and receive the complete forgiveness he offers and follow him with courage and humility. Amen. Well, as uh, you can clearly see, there's four sections in today's reading. And in each section, there's some kind of issue pops up, followed by an interaction uh, with the Pharisees, and and then Jesus' responses that I love so much. Now, the Pharisees, they were a strict group within the teachers of the law. They believed that perfect obedience to the law was what earned God's approval and blessing. So they were devoted to understanding and obeying the finest details of God's law. And they added lots of their own detail just to make it super clear. And they tried to force everyone else to do the same. They were the purity police, if you like. Quick to investigate and silence any self-made religious teacher. And here Mark shows us four encounters they have with Jesus that end up, as we just heard, with a plot to kill Jesus. Well, the first story opens up with Jesus getting on with the job. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Popularity often changes people, doesn't it? But I love this. Not Jesus. Uh, Jesus isn't affected at all. He doesn't let the growing crowds change his character or distract him from his mission. He knows what he's there for. It's unusual, isn't it? To be so focused. And what he does next is even more unusual. Verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up, followed him. Now, why is that so unusual? Well, tax collectors were regarded as traitors because they collected tax from their own people, Israelites, to pass on to Romans. What's more, they were notorious for overcharging and just pocketing the excess. So they were thieves, they were traitors, nobody liked them. They were hated. Um, and they, nobody could stop them either because they were backed by, by Rome. Um, as a result, it was shameful to socialise with people like this. They were often even barred from synagogues, which meant they were cut off from worshipping God. In short... Tax collectors, they were social outcasts, they were religious outcasts. And one more thing, they were usually rich because of what they did. Now throughout his word, God often reminds his people to care for the poor and needy. 
But he never tells us to ignore the rich either. They need his love and mercy too. By calling Levi, Jesus made it clear that there is no social or religious or economic barrier too big for Jesus to demolish. Have you ever felt the pain of being excluded by people? Sadly, it's not that uncommon, is it? Perhaps you've been hurt by a church or or a minister or got the impression that you're not welcome in a certain group of God's people. Jesus has words for you. He has words for all of us. Follow me, he says. The word follow, it's a verb, it's a doing word. It's a decision of our head and heart that is seen in everything that we do, all of our behaviour. It's the natural application of Jesus' call in chapter 1 to repent and believe as we surrender the lead place in our lives to Jesus. Jesus loves us and he calls us as we are so we can receive his forgiveness for sin. And then as we follow him, he transforms our lives. For Levi, it was a big decision. Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, uh, they could easily return to fishing if this whole thing went belly up. But for Levi, leaving his tax booth while on duty under the Romans meant he could not return. And yet the prospect of following Jesus made it an easy choice. And I love the next verse. Levi throws this party, which Luke's gospel says was to honour his new friend Jesus. And, uh, and look who's there, verse 15. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were, look at this bit, many who followed him. Many who followed him. The call went out and many responded and followed Jesus. And then enter the Pharisees. They see what's going on and they're appalled. This is so inappropriate for any self-respecting Israelite, let alone a man who claims to teach others as a rabbi. They can't even bring themselves to talk to Jesus. I wonder if they were afraid. Perhaps they thought that Jesus would somehow make them ceremonially unclean. So verse 16, they asked his disciples, why does he get with tax collectors and sinners? And I love Jesus' response. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's brilliant. Jesus identifies only two types of people. It begs the listener to answer for themselves. Am I healthy and righteous? Or or am I sick and a sinner who needs this Jesus? Now, we like to make it a sliding scale, don't we? Put ourselves in the middle somewhere, uh, because that way we can kind of add Jesus to life where we think we need him, but not let him be Lord of everything. But Jesus doesn't let us do that. It's not how he puts it. Am I a sinner or am I already clean, righteous? We must choose. Where do I fit? It's one or the other. Now, I'm sure the party crowd uh, knew where they fitted, Certainly in the eyes of the Pharisees and probably in the eyes of God too. They were the sick sinners in need of a spiritual doctor. And in his kindness, God sent them one in Jesus. What do you think the Pharisees were thinking? Because of their strict obedience, adherence to God's law, they prided themselves in being righteous. 
acceptable to God because they were so good. They didn't need a spiritual doctor. They were the spiritual doctors for the nation of Israel. And here's the shock of it. For anyone like that, for anyone who thinks they're already good enough for God, Jesus says, I did not come for you. They'll perish for eternity. Jesus' behaviour here, it's not an endorsement for mindless participation in parties with sinful people. It's a beautiful example of the Son of God befriending a sinful outcast and calling him to a life of true joy and peace and love by following him. So before we move on, I think it's worth considering how we might use our social life and especially our practice of hospitality to help other people find and follow Jesus. Let's not judge by appearances or presume who is suitable for God's kingdom or who might be particularly responsive. I reckon a lot of people would look at a tax collector and go, there's no way this guy's going to respond. Instead, let's ask God to fill our hearts with compassion for the lost, rich or poor, outcast or not, but especially those who are marginalised or despised in our culture. Let's connect with people in the hope that we can connect them with Christ. When we have people over, be intentional. Let's mix it up. Uh, Invite a friend or a family from church and uh, as well as someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. Get conversations going. In fact, in our conversations after church, we could share all of our ideas on how we uh, use uh, our social life and hospitality. Be involved in a team sport uh, for the purpose of building friendships with people who don't yet know Jesus. Lots of things we can do. And then in this next section, the Pharisees appear again. Not so much a clash this time, but more of a contrast. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Simple question. Doesn't seem too loaded. But Jesus replies with two metaphors, and if we understand them rightly, this is just massive. The first one pictures a wedding. Now, can you imagine going to a wedding reception, and just when the bride and and groom enter the room, all of the food is taken away? This is ridiculous, isn't it? Jesus says he's the bridegroom, and all his followers are guests at the wedding feast. That's why they're now feasting, not fasting. And when he is taken away, now that's a reference to his his death and then resurrection and ascension. He's no longer physically there. At that point, fasting will again have a place among his followers until he returns. But for people like the Pharisees, who knew the Old Testament, Jesus' words are explosive because in Isaiah uh, chapter 54, God announced that he would come to his unfaithful people like a husband to an unfaithful bride. He would come to save sinners. So here, Jesus is saying, it's happening. I am God here for sinners. 
Isn't that exactly what we saw in the last section with Levi and last week with the paralytic? In the second metaphor, Jesus talks about clothing and wine and and says the new doesn't fit in with the old. What does he mean? Well, Jesus is the new cloth. Jesus is the new wine. He's teaching. He's called to follow him exclusively. And ultimately, his death on the cross for sins opens up a completely new way to God. This idea comes back towards the end of Mark's gospel with the Last Supper. And we hear the words, this is my blood of the new covenant, the new agreement between God and his people. The whole sacrificial system and especially the extra rules of the Pharisees are like an old garment that Jesus rips open and replaces. He is the new wine that bursts the old traditions wide open. Now hearing this was a red rag in front of the Pharisees and we'll see that in the next couple of sections but what does it mean for us first I I think uh, first of all uh, people who follow Jesus should be characterized by true joy because we are loved we are forgiven and accepted by God secondly we are saved by Jesus not by our own goodness We need to be careful not to add anything to the gift of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Or as a little kid's song says it, the gospel is not do, do, do. Jesus says it's done for you. The gospel is not strive and strive. Only Christ makes us alive. Should have used the guitar. In the last two sections, the tension with the Pharisees increases significantly. It starts with a typical, almost mundane scene. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. So what? And suddenly out of nowhere, there's Pharisees pointing the finger. It's almost like they're like hiding, watching, waiting to pounce. Verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're out of the grain fields, for goodness sake. And the Pharisees just happen to be in the grain fields too, all of a sudden. It's bizarre. Well, in the Old Testament, God had actually made provision for travellers and foreigners. And in fact, anyone who was out of their own paddock. If you enter your neighbour's grain field... You may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. In other words, have a bite to eat, but don't harvest it for profit. So what's the problem here? Well, the Pharisees had added their own detail to God's law, and by their standards, Jesus' disciples were sinning on the Sabbath. And Jesus' reply is astonishing. Firstly, he quotes a story from the Old Testament where David, the king of God's people, ate the priest's bread and gave it to his men because they were hungry. So by association, Jesus is saying he's the king of God's people and he's sharing it with his men because they're hungry. 
And then he sums it up with two huge truths. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Last week we saw that Jesus claimed to be God by forgiving sins. Here, he's claiming to be God by saying he is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a whopping claim because the idea of a Sabbath rest goes right back to creation itself. God created everything that exists in six days and then Genesis chapter 2 tells us by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy and gave the Sabbath day as a lasting gift to his people. A blessing not a burden. Now, now, as the followers of Jesus uh, came to understand this, the, the Apostle John later wrote about Jesus. Through him, as Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Paul wrote, all things were created by him and for him. They realized that Jesus was there from the start. And so, Jesus is Lord of this wonderful gift of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had filled it with rules that made it anything but rest. They'd asked a question about the Sabbath to the Lord who made the Sabbath. And so in this last section, the Lord who made the Sabbath tells us what the Sabbath is meant to be about. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And the Pharisees see this bloke and they're delighted because they realize this could be a trap for Jesus. If he heals the man, he's working on the Sabbath and they can accuse him. Jesus also sees the man and recognizes it as a divine opportunity. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. What's going to happen? Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? It's not a trick question, is it? I mean, the answer is pretty obvious. Do good. Save life. According to the Lord of the Sabbath, that's what it's all about. But look at the Pharisees. They thought they had Jesus trapped and then all of a sudden, instead, his simple question has them trapped and they remained silent. Their hearts have been exposed. They're not interested in listening to Jesus, but in silencing him. Instead of coming to him for life, they want to take his life. And look at Jesus' response. It's really fascinating. Verse 5. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the miracles that we read in in the, the Gospels. But Mark portrays it in a way that it's not about the miracle. The miracle is just pointing us to the man and the message. Look at Jesus. There's anger and deep distress. The Pharisees were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people, and yet their stubbornness meant they would murder instead of receiving eternal life. And forgiveness from Jesus. What's worse, their position 
meant they and their many followers were in danger of hell. Friends, here this morning, Jesus sees our hearts. He knows every fear, every sin, every delight, every moment of stubbornness, every dream, every desire. He knows everything about our hearts. He sees it all. These four stories help us see that Jesus is God. He loves sinners and came to seek them out and save them and call them to follow him that they may have life. He came to introduce a completely new way of being right with God. A relationship built on mercy, not on merit. So friends, what is our response to him? He sees our hearts. Will we surrender the throne of our heart to follow Jesus alone?